Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Snowcopolis 2016, such as it is. I do have friends up in Washington, D.C. who got close to 36 inches of snow, um, which sounds really cool, but uh, then you have to go out and deal with it. So let's just be thankful for the snow we got and the beauty of it, and uh, that's good enough. Uh, we have been in a series and continuing in a series called Truth in Art, and uh, this year, the Truth in Art series has been looking at films. And of course, we looked at Mad Max last week and uh, Tree of Life the week before that. And one of the things that I've really appreciated as Brian has set the stage is he's talked about why we're doing this. Truth in Art, you don't come to church necessarily to, to look at a movie review, but he's been setting it up by talking about the importance of thinking critically as we are watching movies. He's talked about the fact that, that we often just go to movies just for entertainment. We don't think about it at all. Or if, if we do as Christians, we say, oh, I can't go to that movie because, you know, it's, it's bad stuff and I don't want to have to deal with that. And he was always suggesting a third way, that is going to movies and really going there with a sense of discernment. And I came across a, a quote this week that I thought was very helpful along those lines uh, from a critic, he said this, popular culture is delivered to us in the form of story via books, TV, film, music, video games, and new media. Obviously, the, most of us are there to simply be entertained. However, along with that entertainment comes messaging. It may not be intentional, oftentimes it isn't, but whenever we view a piece of popular culture, we should ask what messages it delivers, what values are espoused or rejected? What is the moral of the story? And how do you feel about the answers to these questions? And so what we're doing in this series is looking at a movie and asking those kind of questions and really asking them as, as, uh, as Christians from a, a, a biblical perspective. How should we look at this movie? How should we view that? So as we get into this one this morning, let's just take a minute to pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds that are discerning, not just to accept everything that we hear, but, but to consider and reflect upon that. I even pray this morning as my friends here listen to what I have to say, that they will come with a discerning mind and not just accept everything I'm saying, but would think about that carefully themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a uh, sophomore in college, I was led over a period of time to transfer going to my junior year from one college to another. I had been in an all-male military school. At that time, it was all-male. There are females there now, thank the Lord. Um, but it was an all-male military school, Virginia Military Institute, and I transferred back to my hometown, to Washington, D.C., so I could work in the, the youth ministry of the church where I had grown up. And that summer, between my sophomore and junior years, I was working in the youth ministry on the, on the middle school team. And I'll never forget, about halfway through the summer, the youth minister pulled me aside, pulled me into his office, sat me down and said, Bob, I need to share some things with you. He said, yesterday, uh, two of the staff girls were found in the ladies' room crying because of something that you had said to them. And... Uh, I have to be honest with you, that was probably one of the first times in my life 
that I realized what an emotional idiot I can be. I mean, just a dingbat. And uh, I've been, I've been uh, married now for 38 years. I've been in the ministry for 45 years. And I'm still working at trying to understand my emotions and the emotions of other people. And that is the theme of the movie we're looking at this morning, Inside Out, which is a favorite of all of us. It's my favorite from 2015. And uh, you can see it says, get in touch with your emotions in Inside Out. Or another phrase that they use for that is uh, Inside Out, a major emotion picture. So it's not hard to understand what the theme is going to be this morning. And uh, for those of you, few in this group who haven't seen the movie yet, let me just give you a, a quick recap. The story is about Riley, an 11-year-old girl, and her parents who are moving from uh, Minneapolis to San Francisco because of a job change. And the movie really centers around the challenges that Riley is going through as an 11-year-old facing her transition to a new home, to a new school, and, uh, and to, to her, a new hockey team. And that's kind of the, the, the basic idea, but the deeper story is what's happening with Riley's emotions. And uh, the movie introduces us to five different emotions, but I thought this morning, instead of me talking about those, we'd let Pixar introduce you to the emotions that are in the movie, okay? A major emotion picture. So uh, there's so many things we could talk about. The only thing missing in that clip... Um, is, uh, and we'll talk about more later, is the control panel inside, uh, inside the headquarters. Get it? Okay. Uh, we'll get back to that a little bit later. But um, there's so many things we could talk about about this movie. It's so cool. But we're going to focus on three things this morning. Uh, the first thing is that emotions are normal and natural. They're part of our being made in God's image. The second thing we're going to look at is understanding and managing our emotions and then the control panel comes back in with the question, who is at the control panel? Uh, so those are the things we're going to look at this morning. We want to begin by, asking the, uh, by looking at the fact that emotions are, being ma- are made a part of our being made in God's image. And this is important because um, we'll see that one of our tendencies is to downplay emotions, to not be aware of them. And it's important for us to see that emotions are part of who we are. And not only that, it's part of our being made in God's image. And I thought it would be interesting for us, in order to see that this is our image-bearing nature, uh, to see how emotion is expressed in God's character. And we see this throughout the Bible, how God has emotions. But I thought the easiest way to do that would be to look at the emotions from inside out and see that Jesus reflected all of those emotions, but without improper or sinful expression. So let's look at those emotions quickly and see about Jesus expressing those. First, we have our friend joy. And, um, and how does Jesus express joy? Well, there's a story in Luke chapter 10 of Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. And he sends them out to do ministry. And then they come back and report to Jesus all the various things that happened. And Jesus, in response to their report, it says, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. It says Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He experienced joy. Okay, well, let's get to the tougher ones. How about uh, our friend sorrow? 
Well, that's not really too tough. There's a story uh, in the scriptures. It's got to come. In John chapter 11, when Jesus' good friend Lazarus was sick, eventually Jesus got there and Lazarus had already died. And we find out in John chapter 11 that Jesus asked, where have you laid him? And they said to them, Lord, come and see. And then the fact that Jesus wept. And then after he got to the tomb, it says Jesus deeply moved, was deeply moved again when he came to it. So we see that Jesus experienced real human sadness and genuine sadness about this, about this situation and other places. Okay, uh, if you can see him fairly well, that's our friend anger. Is it possible that Jesus experienced anger and did it righteously? I got into an argument with a friend about that in high school one time. Of course, we didn't express it righteously. But um, in Mark chapter 5, Jesus, there's a story of Jesus speaking in a synagogue, and a man with a withered hand had come in. Now, we don't know if he was planted there, but we do know that everyone in the synagogue, and especially the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were watching Jesus. What's he going to do with this man with a withered hand? Jesus had him come up in front of the entire congregation, And then he asked the leaders this question, is it right on the Sabbath day to heal a man or not heal him? And it says that the leaders remained absolutely silent. They were scared because they didn't want to answer. And in response, it says Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So clearly it's possible to feel anger but not sin. The next feeling is fear. Where do we see Jesus experience fear? After all, he's God. Well, he's also man. And in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows what he's facing. He's already told his disciples at least three times that he was going to be taken, arrested, betrayed, whipped, scourged, finally be taken to the cross and and be killed on the cross. How would you feel if you knew that was what you were facing? Jesus, as God-man, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and he prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Why would he say remove it? Fear? Nevertheless, it says, not my will but yours be done. Regardless of the fear, he wants God's will to be done, even if he's feeling that way. But it goes on, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, there's controversy about interpreting this, but my perspective on this is that Jesus didn't look forward to the cross. As a human being, he would just have been happy and preferred not to go through it. But the greater desire was to obey the Father. And yet he still had these feelings. And then the one I found the most challenging at first was disgust. Jesus, disgust? Well, first, what I needed to do was find a good definition for disgust. And I found that disgust is a feeling of profound disapproval aroused by something unpleasant or offensive. When I came across that that definition, I began to think of all kinds of places where Jesus expressed disgust because he was experiencing profound disapproval. 
Here's just one example. In Mark chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus had been in a boat with the disciples, and he had actually been asleep in the back of the boat, and this huge storm came up, and these experienced fishermen were scared to death that they were going to die from the storm. They, they couldn't do anything about it until they just went to Jesus, who was asleep in the back, and they, they said, Jesus, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're going to die? Jesus got up and calmed the storm, said, peace be still. And after calming the storm, he turned to the disciples and he said this, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? You see his disappointment, his sense of disapproval. And we can see that in many places. All this is just to say, here are the five feelings that we find in Inside Out, all expressed by Jesus. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, the fact that we have feelings because we're made in the image of God, we need to recognize that often we are unaware of them, and we even downplay our feelings. If you saw Inside Out, you probably recognize the fact that Riley, while experiencing all five of those feelings, really wasn't very much in touch with them. They were dominating her, even while she was experiencing them, but she wasn't really aware of them. Interestingly enough, Riley's parents were not in touch with her feelings, nor were they in touch with their own feelings. And the point that I'm trying to simply make here is that we need to understand our feelings and the impact that they're having upon us. And often, even when we are aware of them, we downplay them, and we need to be aware of them, and to respect them. The story I told you about the girls crying in the, in, the, in the girls' room. My first response to that was defensiveness. You know, I come from a military school. My first response was, why don't they just suck it up? What's wrong with them? Then I thought, you know, they're just so oversensitive. And, you know, I wasn't saying anything. You know, what's, what's going on here? After reflecting just for a few minutes, I began to realize, wait a minute. The issue is what I said to them and my insensitivity that they experienced. I need to own my own failure here and my failure of even downplaying it and not being in touch with my defensiveness. And I need to acknowledge that and I need to go to them and ask forgiveness. Being aware of our feelings because we're made in God's image and not downplaying them. The second thing we want to do this morning is recognize after we see our feelings are natural and normal that we need to understand them. We've already touched upon that. And we need to learn how to to manage our feelings. Now, why is that important? I'd suggest to you that this is important for everyone in the room regardless of your faith commitment. Why? Well, let me just give you an illustration. Here's a picture of a man that none of you know, uh, but his name is Dr. Daniel Goleman, and he's probably the leading researcher in the area of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the capacity to understand my feelings and to manage them properly, as well as the capacity to understand what others are feeling and deal with responsibly how that's impacting our situation. Emotional intelligence. This is what Goleman says about the importance of emotions for everyone in this room. He says, research over the last 20 years shows emotional competencies 
were found to be twice as important in contributing to excellence as pure intellect and expertise. You catch that? He's saying that EQ, emotional intelligence, is twice as important as IQ in seeking excellence. It's twice as important as the expertise people have developed over the years. He's saying you can have great expertise and be a jerk. You can have great intellect and not know what to do with it. That emotional intelligence has a doubled impact on success. He goes on and says, in a study of hundreds of top executives at 15 global companies, close to 90% of their success in leadership was attributable to emotional intelligence. And we could go on and on and on and on looking at studies which show that EQ is probably the most critical element in professional and personal growth, development, and maturity. So it's important for everybody to understand and manage their emotions. It's doubly important for Christians. Why? Well, for Christians, growing to be like Jesus includes emotional growth. And I could take you to a lot of passages of Scripture which affirm that. Let me just show you one. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul is talking about an experience he had where he had to experience emotional growth to become more like Jesus. He said, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Pause. Apparently, the Apostle Paul had some amazing spiritual experiences, profound revelations. Now, if you or I had those experiences where God gave us insights that other people weren't getting, I'm not going to speak for you, but for me, I could, I, I could get arrogant really fast. I could take on this attitude of super spirituality. You know, God, God must really think there's something special about me because he's revealed these things to me. Paul, Paul says, in order that I wouldn't be too elated by these greatness revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three, three times, he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, now get this, why would God give him this, to harass him, this thorn? He said, I want you to learn something, Paul, Instead of being elated, I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, I, only, I not only want you to learn something theologically here, I want you to learn something emotionally. And so Paul goes on to say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Now, I'd suggest to you that an insecure person an arrogant person, a prideful person, is not going to respond that way. But a person whose emotions have been matured through pain and, and struggles learns how to reflect the weaknesses of his life or her life, demonstrating the power of Christ. He goes on, For the sake of Christ, then, I am counted, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That, my friends, is a statement of a person who through pain has grown to have a high level of emotional maturity. 
and recognizing God's power reflected in the midst of the brokenness of our world. Emotional intelligence. Now, to give you a contemporary example, this gentleman's name is Pete Scazzaro. None of you have ever met Pete. I've met him and spent a little bit of time with him. I can't say he's a close friend, but I have a deep respect for him. He's written three different books on this idea of emotional intelligence for Christians. The one on the, on, on the uh, my left, your right, is, uh, is said, it's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The other one is Emotionally Healthy Church, and the third one's Emotionally Healthy Leadership. And Pete's very candid about his own personal experience in these books. Let me just share a, a little bit of a testimony from him. He said this, I was a senior pastor of a large growing church who had been trained in two leading seminaries, attended the best leadership conferences, served on staff with InterVarsity, which is a Christian uh, university uh, pro, uh, program, and had been a devoted follower of Christ for 17 years. Yet I was stunted emotionally and spiritually. For nearly two decades, I had ignored the emotional component in my spiritual growth and relationship with God. I, it didn't matter how many books I might read or how much I devoted myself to prayer, I would remain stuck in repeated cycles of pain and immaturity. I discovered the inseparable link between emotional health and spiritual maturity, that it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So how are we to grow emotionally? How are we to understand and manage our emotions? Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 gives us a good insight into how this can take place. Paul says, be angry and don't sin. And don't let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, embedded in this verse, these two verses, we see five basic principles of understanding and managing emotion. The first is this. He says, be angry. And in essence, what he's saying is recognize and acknowledge your feelings. You see, emotions often work, as we've already seen, emotions often work under the surface. And what Paul's saying is, get it out in the open. Acknowledge the feelings that you're having, first of all. Second of all, he says, deal with these feelings responsibly. He says, be angry, but don't sin. What he's saying here is, you have a choice. What are you going to do with these emotions? My counsel to you, he says, is recognize your anger, but don't sin. Make a proper choice of what you're going to do with your feelings. The third thing he says is, don't let the sun go down in your anger, which means deal with them in a timely manner. Don't delay. Don't put it off. The fourth thing he says is, recognize there's a supernatural dynamic going on as you seek to manage your feelings. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. Get this unacknowledged, unconfronted, unmanaged emotions are the devil's playground. When you acknowledge them, when you deal with them responsibly and in a timely manner, you can use them in a way which honors God. But the opposite is also the case. 
And so Paul recognizes there's a supernatural dynamic going on. And finally, this isn't in the verse, but we could take this from other verses. When we blow it, and we will, we need to reprocess bad process. The fact is, is I many times will not be in touch with my feelings, will not manage them responsibly, and hurt other people like I hurt those girls in the junior high ministry, the middle school ministry team. And when that happens, you need to reprocess bad process. That includes reprocessing it with God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as well as reprocess it with others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Just like Paul said, deal with it and deal with it responsibly and in a timely fashion. Let me, let me give you an example of how this works. Um, when, when my kids were, were small, or my oldest son was in middle school and my younger son was coming up in, in elementary school, uh, we, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, okay? Pastor, pastor's home, pastor's kids. We used to have what we would begin to call nuclear family reactions, okay? Uh, it would go something like this. Uh, let's say that my son, one of, my son would kind of... Uh, talk back to his mom, okay? And my wife didn't particularly appreciate that, so she'd take him on it. She'd, she'd, she'd challenge him on it, and he'd start getting defensive. And of course, then if I was around, I would get in, and I'd get on his case for giving his mom a hard time. And of course, his brother was there, and if his brother was in the foul mood, he would start taking his, his, his older brother's place. And we'd be going at each other and talking, and our voices would raise, and we'd be interacting together, and even the dog would start barking. And we'd be going at it until the telephone rang. Now, this is a pastor's house. And the phone rang. And pastor's families aren't supposed to be having nuclear family reactions, right? So I put my hand on the phone. When I put my hand on the phone to pick it up, guess what happened? Silence. Oh, hi. Yeah, this is Pastor Burns. How can I help you? Oh, I'd be glad to help out with that, and blah, 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 blah. Thank, oh, thanks. Listen, I'll look forward to talking to you later. Bye-bye. Click. <laughs> it all blows up again. Now, what was happening? We were recognizing and managing our feelings. When that phone rang, silence. Don't tell me you can't manage your feelings under the circumstances necessary, you can put a, you can deal with them. And so what we find in the scriptures here is we need to understand and manage our feelings responsibly. Third point, who's at the control panel or what they call the council, the council, not council, but council, the control panel. Who's at the control panel? Okay. You can see from the picture here that all the five emotions are surrounded. Now, in the movie, Joy is usually the one at the controls, and she works overtime to make sure that others stay in line. I'd suggest to you that of all the phenomenal things in this movie, this is one area that is a little bit uh, distorted or wrong in the movie. Why? Because psychology would tell us that we need to take responsibility for our feelings, that we need to use what they would call emotional regulation. Now, how do you do that when all 
or some of the emotions are at the control panel. What psychology would teach us is that the self needs to be at the council. The self is the mature, responsible, integrated uh, aspect of our personhood who acknowledges and recognizes and manages the feelings. And you see, you don't see the, the self in the context of the movie. You just see the emotions at work. And uh, the emotions, psychology would tell us, need to submit to the self. Now, we're not talking about putting the, self, the emotions down. We're not talking about repressing them, trying to forget about them. We're talking about proper, responsible management of them by the self. Now, Christians, using the scriptures, would agree with this, but say that's not quite enough. We'd say that Christianity would say that the self needs to be in partnership with God. What do we mean by that? When a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters into their life, and they are given capacities that they didn't have before. Three of them come to mind immediately. First of all, you're given the scriptures which gives us guidelines and understanding of God's truth, how we're to live and move and act. Secondly, he gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And then together with that, we have godly wisdom. And we're called to apply those and to use those in partnership, ourself in partnership with God, in order to live in a manner that reflects God's truth and honors him. So, for example, Philippians chapter 2 is just one of many passages we could look at that talks about this this partnership. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the self, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. That God comes alongside with you and you working together with God in partnership with the scriptures and his Holy Spirit using godly wisdom applies the emotions and uses the emotions responsibly, Lord willing, or else you reprocess bad process. Again, let me give you an illustration of of how that happens. Um, I came across this story a number of years ago when I was doing some personal work on family history. You have to understand that during the Revolutionary War, there were really two groups of people in the colonies, One group was called the Patriots. They're the ones who were for the revolution, supporting it, participating in the the army and other things. The other side was the Tories. They were colonists, colonialists, who were on the side of King George and Great Britain. And the country was torn quite a bit between the Patriots and the Tories. And there wasn't any place in the country that experienced this bitterness more than in the state of South Carolina, where neighbors would actually be against neighbor. And there was deep embedded anger between people who at one time lived and worked in harmony together. It turns out that my great, 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 great grandfather, Daniel Elliott, yeah, that's four greats, um, was a patriot. As a matter of fact, I've been at his grave, and, and on the gravestone it says, Daniel Elliott Patriot of the Revolution. Okay, he wanted his, he wanted to be known for what he was, and um, and he and his three oldest sons were part of the uh, colonial army that was fighting down in, in in South Carolina and North Carolina, 
And what, it wasn't unusual that during the harvest season, soldiers would actually go home and take part in the harvest and then come back to the army. And so my great-great-great-great-grandfather came home and was part of the, the harvest time. And during that time, one of his neighbors, who was a Tory, came and shot him to death. Now, after the war, his oldest son, my great-great-grandfather's oldest son, William, returned, and first thing on his agenda was the avenging the murder of his father. And as the story goes, he took his rifle and he started going towards that neighbor's house. And as he was walking along, suddenly, Holy Spirit, Romans 12, 19 came to his mind. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. At that point, as the story goes, William stopped, reflected on that, turned around and went home. Now, I'd suggest to you what we, what we see there is that when he got back from the war, anger was at the control panel. And he got that rifle and he was going off to avenge his father's death. But then the spirit and the word broke in and together with the self took back the control panel and he obeyed the scriptures and didn't commit a murder. That's what we're talking about as far as understanding who's at the control panel recognizing your feelings, and responding to them appropriately. So, this morning, as we've looked at Inside Out, we've seen these three points. Emotions are normal and natural. They're part of being made in God's image. We need to understand and manage our emotions, and we need to recognize who is at the control panel. Now, as I was closing this, it's interesting that this sermon came upon the heels this week of the celebration of Martin Luther King's birthday. And part of remembering that, I I read parts of a letter that he wrote in August 1963. You you might know from history or remember that Dr. King was participating in a series of demonstrations in Birmingham, Alabama, peaceful demonstrations against racism and against the conditions in the South at that time, conditions in the entire country. And Dr. King was arrested during a brutal time during those marches when they were turning water cannons on the crowd, when there were dogs that they were letting attack people, when there was beatings going on. And Dr. King was put in jail for being the, the ringleader of this demonstration. And you can imagine the pain he was experiencing having gone through that, having seen people beaten and hurt, himself experiencing brutal, brutal treatment, and he's sitting, and, and, and he, what's he going to do with those feelings? And Dr. King writes this letter, the letter from the Birmingham jail, which I'd encourage you to go read. It's a remarkable document of a person taking the pain and the difficulties of his circumstances and using his emotions responsibly. It's a document of emotional intelligence as well as of truth. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I'd just like to share with you one small portion which reflects one of his deepest, deepest frustrations and disappointments with the ministers in the South. 
he said this, let me rush on to mention my other disappointment. I've been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it's the law. Now listen, you can just see the pathos here, the emotion. I've longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the black man's your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the black man, I've watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. Besides the truth expressed, do you see the emotion that is properly being used in the expression of the truth? Understanding our feelings as being made in the image of God, recognizing and managing them, and seeking in partnership with God himself through the scriptures and his Holy Spirit to responsibly use those to his glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the movie Inside Out. I thank you that it helps us recognize and acknowledge our feelings and to manage them responsibly, joining you at the control panels of our lives to reflect your gospel with emotional intelligence. Do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, as we go out into this week, as we are at our control panels seeking with God's partnership to be responsible with our feelings, in that time, may the love of God the Father, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may the peace of the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.